This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. We've been going through the book of Romans verse by verse. This is uh, week number 10 in our series. Uh, and so we find ourselves in Romans chapter, 10, uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, verse number 16 and 17 today. We're going to back up to verse number 13 just for the sake of context. And read through verse number 17, Romans chapter 1 this morning. I'm entitled today's message, Not Ashamed of the Gospel. Pretty straightforward. Romans chapter 1, verse number 13. Now I would not have you ignorant brethren that oftentimes... I purposed to come to you, but was led hitherto that I might have some fruit among you also, even as amongst the other Gentiles. I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Verse 16 is where we're going to spend our time today in verse 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God and his salvation unto everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. If you're in the habit of writing your Bible, I'd encourage you to circle verse number 16. It's really, really important for you and I uh, to get. We live in a society today where the gospel is uh, not so much good news. We talked about that last week, how the gospel can sometimes be offensive. You're wrong. You've broken God's law. Jesus is the only way to make things right. You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone to save you from your sins. If you don't, you will endure God's punishment for all of eternity. That's an offensive message. And so unfortunately, we live in a, a day today where churches have tried to remove the offense from the gospel. Make it a little bit more easy to, to digest. A little bit more tasty going down by removing the offense. And then the gospel, if you remove the offense from it, sounds a lot like this. God has a wonderful plan for your life. God loves you just the way you are. If you'll say yes to Jesus today, he's going to start fulfilling that beautiful plan for your life. How many would like to say yes to Jesus today? People raise their hands and wow, amen. That was really encouraging that God has this plan for my life and all I have to do is just say yes uh, and I'll now receive this beautiful uh, gift that God has for me called the yes life or something crazy like that. And, and then we remove this. It sounds like God's okay with the way that you are. Just continue in the way that you are. God's nice and he's going to be nice to you. God's good and he's going to give you good things. And your life is just going to be happy and blessed because you said yes to Jesus. That is not the gospel. So when Paul says in verse number 16, the, the power of God unto salvation is found in the gospel. The message that we hear often repeated in churches today isn't the gospel. When you have people who call themselves pastors that are not pastors at all, who say things like, we don't like to use the word sin. We like shortcomings or failures or bad habits. Uh, we don't like to use the word sin. We don't like to talk about judgment uh, because, you know, we want to be a very inclusive type of church that doesn't judge anybody. So when you say things like, God's judgment, that makes people feel awkward and, and uncomfortable. We don't want to make people feel awkward and uncomfortable, so we'll remove the word judgment. 
hell uh, just makes people sad, and so we're not going to talk about hell because that's kind of scary, and we don't want to be a scary church. We want to be a happy, uplifting church, and so we'll remove hell from the gospel message, and so we're going to take out sin, we're going to take out judgment, we're going to take out hell, and then again, all that we're left with is religious platitudes and and feel-good ideas that we have, but we don't have the gospel, and that's problematic, and when I talk with people Christians, Bible-believing Christians like you and I, and I say to them, hey, why don't you share your faith more often? Twice a year we have a, a, a weekend workshop that we call Sharing Jesus, where we take about eight hours and we teach you how to share your faith with another person. We take a look at passages of Scripture that you need to know, Bible doctrine that you need to understand, ways that you can communicate that, ways that you can kick off gospel conversations or turn, steer conversations back to the gospel and uh, begin to plant seeds and water seeds and maybe harvest seeds. And we talk about that for like eight hours but almost every time when I talk to somebody, I say, why don't you share your faith? It comes back to the exact same thing, and it's this, fear. I'm afraid of what people will think of me if I say that I'm a Christian. I'm afraid of how people will perceive me if I say things like, Jesus is the only way to heaven. Am I going to be labeled? Am I going to be judged? Maybe somebody's going to ask me a question that I don't have the answer to, and then I'm going to look dumb, and I don't want to do that. And so uh, I have a fear of, of maybe not having the answers, a fear of maybe looking dumb, and so that's going to keep me from sharing my faith the way that I would. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You see, when people compromise the gospel, they often do so out of a fear of man. I'm worried about what other people will think. I'm worried about what other people will say. I don't want to be labeled as that guy. This was very popular back in the 80s when uh, someone coined the term lifestyle evangelism. They said, confrontational evangelism, we want to avoid that because we don't want to confront people with their need for sin. We don't want to ask questions like, hey man, if you died today, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? That makes people feel weird. We don't want to confront people with the gospel. What we're going to do instead is we're just going to live the gospel. I'm going to go to work every day and I'm not going to curse. I'm going to talk kindly about my wife. I'm going to be, uh, be the best worker in my office. And then after time, people will see that I'm different and they'll be like, hey, bro, what's different with you? And I'm saying, I'm so glad you asked. The difference in me is Jesus. And then you'll have the opportunity to share the gospel. Now, that sounds like a great idea, but here's the problem. We live in a planet where at least 50% of the world's population has never heard the gospel one time. We can't wait six to nine months, 12 months for somebody to ask us, we've got to be telling people like every day. But the flip side of that too is also this, is that if the gospel is not an urgent message that we can just kind of sit back and relax and wait for people to come to us, I don't know that we fully understand the gospel. And so then some people say, well, we're not supposed to live a good life then to draw people to Christ. No, I don't believe it's an either or when it comes to evangelism. I believe you need to live a lifestyle that draws people to Christ while at the same time challenging them with the truth that comes from the gospel. I believe it's a both and. You can't have one without the other. Uh, for the guy who stands on the, the corner again with a big sign that says turn or burn. You didn't take time to develop a relationship with anybody to get them a difficult message. You're just going about it in a brash, harsh way. And so I believe we have to do both of those together. But what we can't do is we can't not share it. That's just not an option. But oftentimes we don't. I'm in the same category with you because we're scared. We're ashamed. We're embarrassed. This might not go over well. <laughs> when someone says to me, uh, I say, hey, do you have a church that you go to? No, I'm an atheist. It's immediately like, 
like you suck the air out of the room. It's just like, oh, I totally can't share with them because like they don't even believe in God. Like where do you even start with that? And so like, well, I don't want to say anything because like they don't even believe in God, right? No, no, no. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Again, if we continue reading through Romans chapter one, you'll find that there's not, God doesn't believe in atheists. Well, I don't believe in God. No, God doesn't believe in you. God says he's revealed himself unto all men so that they're without excuse. Everybody knows that God exists. And so for me, when somebody says, oh, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, I'll say, when did you stop believing? Because everybody believes, everybody knows that there's a God. You had to, at some point, purposely stop believing, according to the Bible. So again, we can't allow fear to dictate whether or not we share the truth of God's word with somebody. We can't be ashamed of the gospel. One author put it this way, and I thought this quote was so challenging to me, but also so true. He said, the unpopularity of a crucified Christ has prompted many to present a message which is far more palatable to an unbeliever. But the removal of the offense of the cross always renders the message ineffective. An inoffensive gospel is also an inoperative gospel. Thus, Christianity is wounded most in the house of its friends. So again, if you have even a well-meaning church who says, we're going to take the offense out of the gospel. We're not going to use words like repentance. We're not going to use words like sin. We're definitely not going to talk about judgment, wrath, hell. Uh, we're just going to make it a little bit easier. When you do that, you now have an ineffective gospel. There's no power left. It doesn't have the ability to change lives, to save lives. It's basically dead on the vine. And so we can't afford to compromise the gospel. I'll also tell you that things are getting ready to get really, really heavy on Sunday mornings at who we call it. If you continue reading through Romans chapter 1, you'll find one of the heaviest passages on the depravity of man that you find in all of the Bible. Uh, and we're starting there next week when we begin to talk about the wrath of God. Verse number 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. And like, it just gets worse from there. And so when you talk about things like the wrath of God, try inviting your neighbor. Hey, my pastor's preaching on the wrath of God this weekend. I think it'd be super helpful to you. You want to come? Uh, probably not. <laughs> when is that going to be over? Oh, it's going to be probably, I don't know, the next three months we're going to talk about the wrath of God revealed against those who uh, live ungodly and hold the truth in unrighteousness. You should totally come. It'll be a blast. <laughs> that doesn't draw people in. But hey, again, if you haven't figured out, we're not the church that comes up with a, a catchy, new, kitschy little sermon series where we do these goofy skits and videos and we got bumper videos that show before that and we got man on the street interviews and that's not this. We're just saying what the Bible says. And hey, I can invite my neighbor totally to hear about the wrath of God and they should hear about the wrath of God because hey, afterwards we should totally talk about that. But let me tell you this. If you wanna read through the rest of Romans chapter one and you should, it is, it is an absolute... It's a masterpiece, the entire book of Romans. But just chapter one, super heavy. You'll find that at first on the surface, this appears like really bad news. The wrath of God. That's bad. And when you begin to uncover from the Old Testament to the end of the book of Revelation what the wrath of God looks like, it's just bad, 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 and worse. And so you say, how can that be? be good. Like, am I going to be super bummed out for like the next six weeks talking about the wrath of God? No, no, no. You'll be super encouraged 
because the, the wrath of God is appeased by the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. That's the power of God unto salvation, Paul says. And so Paul sets the stage here that the gospel is power. It's good news. It can save anybody. We live by faith. But the wrath of God is revealed against those who reject faith, who reject Christ. So we can't compromise that. We can't compromise the gospel because it's the only hope for this life and the next. I grew up in a, a Baptist church in Kentucky. Um, we believe the same thing, the church that I grew up in, doctrinally, that, that our church here, who we call it, believes. The Bible is the Word of God. It's inerrant from cover to cover. Jesus Christ is the only Savior for mankind. He's the only hope that we have for, for the remission of sins is His sacrifice on the cross. 100% down to the letter, exactly the same thing we believe here at Huikala. The way that the church that I grew up in lived it out, totally different. In the fact that when you got saved, you basically got a ticket punched to heaven, and you just kind of waited in the airport lounge until your number got called, Right? I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven, I'm thankful for that, and I'll come back once a week, we'll sing some songs, we'll hear some stories about the Bible, and we'll try to like stay out of trouble. We'll avoid the really big sins. And if you do the big sins, you gotta keep it covered up so that nobody knows, because you have to maintain a really good appearance. In the event that everybody finds out that you've done really big sin, all you have to do on a Sunday is come down to the front when the uh, Just As I Am is playing, lay down here, cry for about 45 seconds, go back to your seat, and then everybody knows that you've made it right with God if you get caught. And I thought to myself, again, as a, as a, as a kid, I thought to myself, this is how church is done. As a teenager, I begin to look around and go, wait, wait, wait. If the Bible's true, why are we acting like this? If the Bible's true, why don't we actually do this like Monday through Saturday and not just on Sundays? And I began to become a little bit, I guess you could say, disillusioned with uh, church as I knew it. Joined the Navy right out of high school and went to church sporadically again because I had, hadn't found a lot of usefulness in the church. My wife and I, we got married and decided, hey, we're either going to do this or we're not. And so we decided to start going to church and tried a lot of different churches and uh, we found one that preached the Bible and we'd never been in a Bible preaching church before, and the pastor would say things like, hey, like, we don't do this because the Bible says this verse, this verse, and this verse, so Christians shouldn't act that way. And I was just like, oh, what? And we don't talk like this. That's the way the world talks, but Christians shouldn't have corrupt communication proceeding out of their mouth. And I was just like, wait, what? These people, like, really believe the Bible? And I leaned over to my wife at the end of the service, and I said, I don't know who these people are, but this is what we want to be, like, we just believe the Bible and we live our life by it. Like, that's what I want for my life. Because I knew that just head knowledge Christianity, putting on a show, didn't bring any satisfaction at the end of the day. I knew that Jesus had to be more than just the guy that gets us to heaven. There had to be more to that. And I found this idea in the Bible that I don't just need Jesus for the day that I stand before God in judgment. I need Jesus this morning. I need Jesus this afternoon. I need Jesus tonight. If my marriage has any hope of making it my lifetime, the only hope that's going to keep my marriage together is Jesus. 
If my kids are going to, quote, turn out to be anything, and by that I don't mean like have a career, go to a prestigious school. I'm talking about they love Jesus and want to serve him with their life. That's only going to happen if Jesus is at the center of that. If I'm going to have any friendships that last, that are meaningful, that provide value to my life, that help me to be a better man, it's going to happen because Jesus is the center of those types of relationships. That's the only way that any of it works. So Jesus isn't just enough to punch your ticket to heaven. Jesus is the sustainer of your life on a day-to-day basis. So the gospel gives us hope and meaning for this life here. Romans chapter 5, verse number 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul talks about how Jesus gives us peace with God. He gives us access to God. He gives us the grace wherein we stand. He causes us to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. All those are present tense things that Jesus gives. Paul would tell the church at Colossae when he writes to them that Jesus Christ, who is our life, that Jesus is the source of life for the Christian. And so many times we get mixed up, and again, I had this mixed up for probably the first 20 years of my life, that Jesus was just good enough to get me to heaven, but everything else was 100% on my own power. That could not be further from the truth, and that's probably why many Christians fail, because they don't take hold of the power that Jesus offers on a day-to-day basis. But Jesus not only gives us hope for this life, Jesus also gives us eternal life as well. So the gospel gives us hope in this life. The gospel also gives us eternal life. I, I love the book of John. Oh, man, it is so good. If you're, if you're not a Christian or you're still trying to figure out this whole faith thing, read the book of John. If you're new to your faith or maybe a new Christian, read the book of John. It's just so much good stuff. Beginning of John, John chapter 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus Christ. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse number 14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory and the fullness of God, uh, the the only begotten son of God, full of grace and truth. The Bible tells us, uh, John tells us in John chapter one, to all those that believe on him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those who would believe on his name. John chapter three, we see an interaction with Jesus Christ and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a religious man who thought that he knew things about God and how things worked and knew some things about the Bible. And Jesus says to him, John chapter 3, verse number 3, no man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Nicodemus is kind of scratching his head. He's like, wait, I'm an old man. Can I climb back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? He's like, no, no, no. You need to be born first physically, second spiritually. You need to be born again. No man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Then John, on his own, later makes a little bit uh, stronger truth. We'll see this again next week. I don't want to get too far into next week's message, but John chapter 3, verse number 36, makes it super clear. And if you're here today and you're kind of unsure, like, hey, I'm not really sure if I die today, if I'm going to heaven or not, John makes it really, really clear for you. John 3, 36. He who hath the Son hath life. If you've been saved, if you've been born again, if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have eternal life. Done. He who hath not the Son hath not life. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you do not have eternal life. If you've never been saved or born again, you are not on your way to heaven. You are on your way to hell. John makes it really clear. It's black and white. It's a one or it's a zero. It's it's a very binary. It's on or it's off. 
I always tell people being saved is like being pregnant. No, I've never met anybody kind of pregnant. Uh, hey, are you pregnant? First of all, never ask that question to a woman. I don't care if she looks like she swallowed a basketball. Never ask that question. But nobody's ever said, well, I'm kind of pregnant or I'm on my way to being pregnant. No, no, no. It's, it's on or off. Are you saved? If the answer to that is no, John says this, John 3.36. He who hath not the Son hath not life. And he goes on and says this. And the wrath of God abides on him. Now that's interesting. Because when we talk about God's wrath, we're talking about God's anger, God's punishment. It's not God's wrath will one day abide on him. God's wrath is already on that person. So if you're here today and there's never been a time in your life where you've been saved or born again, please get this. God's anger and judgment is already on top of your head. You're, you're a dead man, dead woman walking. It's only waiting till you take your last breath that you will, will endure the fullness of God's wrath. Now again, it's hard to hear that. Trust me, it's hard to say that sometimes, but it has to come down to this. We cannot be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. That's what Paul says. So heavy, harsh message, definitely, but we can't skirt it. We can't get away from it because that's where the power's at. The gospel is the power of God. pastor friend of mine in uh, South Carolina, is, uh, he's an older dude, he's planted a couple of churches and he now uh, uses his older years to go around other places and help guys that are planting churches and starting churches. And, uh, he brought a, a church planting team here to who he called last year and we had, they went out and passed out invites to church and we had lunch and talked and stuff like that. And he was sharing with me one of the, the church planter guys that he had, had been helping. And he said to him, he said, hey, do you have any printed flyers uh, for your Bible study that you're starting? So this guy was starting a Bible study and was hoping that, that people that came to that Bible study would then turn into a Sunday gathering of a church and start that way. And so he says, yeah, here's my flyers I got for the Bible study. And so the Bible study said, had the name of the Bible study on the front and contact information, where they were going to meet. And so I flipped it over on the back and he said, there's a map to the community center which they're meeting at. And it was a small community and so everybody knew where that was at. You didn't have to make a map for it. And he said, on, on the back, it's just like, you know, other information is like uh, refreshments will be provided and clean bathrooms are available and stuff like that. And he looks at this and he goes, is this all you got? And he goes, the guy said, yeah, I mean, what else should I have? He was like, you need to have the gospel on these things, man. And he said, well, do I need to have the gospel there? I mean, do I have to have the gospel on there? <laughs> and this guy's from the South. He's like, I wanted to jerk a knot in his tail. And I was like, man, you should have done that for sure. Do I need the gospel on this? And he said, I don't know. Do you want the power of God on this Bible study or not? He says, Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. How do you expect people to get saved if they can't hear the gospel is what he said. And I, thought, I said, amen to that, brother. You know why? Because every single printed invitation we've ever had in the history of our church on the back has had the gospel. Because look, at the end of the day, if you don't attend our church, that's fine. At the end of the day, if you don't know where we're located, that's fine. If you can't find our website address, that's fine. If you get the gospel. You know why? Because our church invitations are not the power of God unto salvation. Our church is not the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so on the back of our invite, you'll find a five-step, God loves you. 
You've sinned against God. Sin has a price that must be paid. Jesus paid that price for you. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, and you can be born again. All that's on the back of every single invite we've ever had in the history of our church. Because I want our people to be handing out the gospel because that's where the power's at. God displayed his power, his omnipotence by defeating sin for all who would believe in him. When we talk about the attributes of God, we're going to take a little bit of side uh, teaching moment here to teach you some theology. God has attributes that belong to him and to him alone. One of those is his omnipotence. He's all-powerful. There's nothing that God cannot do. We call that the omnipotence of God. God is also all-knowing. We call that the omniscience of God. There's nothing that God does not know. Because God is omniscient, he knows the beginning from the end. Nothing happens that God is surprised by that takes God by surprise. God never had to come up with a plan B because he knows all things. God is in all places at all times. Uh, that's one of his attributes. He is omnipresent. And the fact that you, there's nowhere on this earth that you can go that God is not currently at because he's omnipresent. God is also eternal. He always has been. He always will be. And so when we talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three of those make up God as we know him. Triune, Trinity, God was the Bible word for that is the Godhead. All three of those have the attributes of God. So the Holy Spirit always has been, always will be. It's eternal. The Holy Spirit's all-powerful, all-knowing. When we talk about things like you and I, we recognize that those are not attributes that you and I can share. We can't be at all places at all times. We don't have all power. We don't know all things. By the same token, while the devil definitely is a formidable foe, the devil is not all-knowing. The devil cannot be at all places at all times. He's not all-powerful. He has not always been. He's a created being. So those are attributes that belong to God and God alone. Now, there are other attributes that God has that he shares with you and I. We call those God's communicable attributes. So two categories, non-communicable, omnipresence, omniscience, uh, omnipotent, things like that. God's communicable attributes that he allows you and I as his children to share Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. We get those from the Holy Spirit. That's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, and 23. So those are attributes that God shares with us. But the power of God belongs to God alone. You and I have no power uh, in and of ourselves. But God defeated sin for everyone who would believe, Romans chapter 5 tells us that for by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, speaking of Jesus Christ, shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense may abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through the righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. I love, love, love what Romans chapter 5 says, that where our sin abounded, God's grace abounded even more. That means if your sin is at like a level five, God's grace will always be at like a level six. <laughs> if your sin is as bad as it can get, it's a 10 out of 10, God's grace will always be an 11. Always. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. That should be an encouragement to us because only God is that powerful. Because our sin is pretty powerful, but the grace of God is even stronger. 
Now, this is a comfort to us because we realize that you and I cannot out the grace of God. That regardless of how bad or wicked I am, all I have to do is come back to the same place where I found grace, faith and repentance, confess my sin before God, and he cleanses me like I was never sinned before in my life. That's a gift. But here's the problem oftentimes that I see with Christians, is we think the grace of God is really good for us, but we don't want the grace of God for everybody else in every situation, right? I want to be forgiven. I, I'm thankful for the fact that I can't sin so much that God cannot forgive me. But then we look at the sin of others. You think of things like pedophilia. Can God forgive that? Well, if he could, he shouldn't. Yeah, I would probably agree with that. <laughs> what about sexual assault? Can God forgive that? Yeah, but he shouldn't. And I agree with that. Child pornography, heinous. Can he forgive that? He could, but he shouldn't, right? Can God forgive serial killers, serial murderers, people who take the life of innocent human beings? Can he forgive that? Yeah, but he probably shouldn't, right? But then you and I become the arbiters of who's, de- of who's deserving of God's grace, don't we? Can God forgive those people? I wouldn't. That's a fact. I wouldn't forgive those people at all. I think those people are, in, are, are deserving of judgment. But again, that's why it's not called the grace of Anthony King, right? It's called the grace of God. God's grace is greater than my ability to give grace. God's ability to love is greater than my ability to love. God's ability to show mercy is greater than mine. That's why there's no one that can out the grace of God because God's grace as found in the person of Jesus Christ is so powerful. It's powerful. You can't go past it. The power of God also gives you and I the power over sin. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you figure it out pretty quickly that you don't have the power in yourself to stop sinning, right? It's not like, well, I'm just going to try to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to turn over a new leaf the funny thing is, is when you and I try to turn over a new leaf, all it takes is for the wind to blow one time and your leaf rolls right back over where it began, right? It's not a matter of like, I'm just going to white knuckle and try really, really hard to never sin again. That doesn't work. There has to be a power that's greater than us that can deliver us from our constant, repetitive, besetting sin. And I'm thankful that the gospel provides the answer to that. Romans chapter 6, I cannot wait to get through the rest of the book of of Romans, but Romans 6 is just going to be so meaty, I can't wait to get there. Romans chapter 6, verse number 14 says this, For sin shall not have dominion over you, ye are not under the law, but under grace. (laughs) Sin doesn't have power over you anymore. Oh no, it does, pastor. If it has power, it's only because you're giving it power. You've allowed yourself to be open to manipulation. You've allowed sin to have power over you because the Bible says that you don't have to sin any longer unless you choose to. God's word promises that when you're caught in a situation of temptation, there will always be a way of escape that you do not have to give in to sin. And now because you're saved and you have the spirit of God inside of you, sin doesn't have power over you anymore like it did before. Again, if you read through Romans chapter 6, it says that you and I were once slaves to sin. 
We couldn't do anything of our own power if we wanted to. But when we became slaves to Christ, we now have the ability to say no to sin. Not of our own power, trying harder, white-knuckling, hoping that we don't give in, but living in the power of the gospel. Power over sin. Romans chapter 8, Paul says it this way, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. It wasn't enough to just make rules saying don't do this because we broke the rules. God couldn't just establish a law saying, hey, live right. You know why? Because we didn't want to live right. So what did God have to do? He had to send his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And I love what he says in Romans 8 there. For sin. So that he would give us the power necessary to say, no, I don't think I will today. No, thank you. I don't want to sin any longer. Now, will we be perfect? No, because we still live in human flesh. But please understand this. You always have the power to say no to sin because of the power of God that's found in the truth of the gospel. So Paul tells us, verse number 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. So the gospel brings us salvation. Turn over you would to Romans chapter 10. I want you to see this. Um, again, we're talking about the gospel, and it's very difficult to talk about the gospel outside of the book of Romans. It's because there's so much good stuff here in dealing with the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. I want you to circle verses 9 and 10 in your Bible. If you're using an app on your mobile device, highlight these verses, because this is how to lead someone to Christ. That if thou shalt believe with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with mouth confession is made unto salvation. So get this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you believe that he died for your sins? Do you believe that he rose again the third day? Do you believe that you cannot earn your way or work your way to heaven? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only hope that you have for this life and the next? Are you willing to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ to save you from your sin? If the answer to all those is yes and you affirm that, believe it and with every fiber of your being and confess it before God, you are saved. You don't have to come forward to church service. You don't have to figure out some prayer that you're supposed to read in the back of a book somewhere. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to go to a class. If you believe, receive, and turn from your sin, you're saved. I had the opportunity last uh, Sunday night to go through the gospel of the man who came to our church. We're talking afterwards, and I said, hey, if you die today, are you 100% sure you go to heaven? He goes, no, I'm 100% sure I go to hell. Okay, we both agree on that then. Good. Good, good starting place. I said, do you believe in God? Oh, yes, sir, I believe in God. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe that he died for your sins? Yes. Do you believe that he is the only way to heaven? Yes. Do you agree that you're a sinner? Yes. Do you realize that your sin will be judged by you going to hell? Yes. Are you willing to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus? No. Okay. Then that's where we're at. 
Is that person saved? No way. Again, verse number nine, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, Jesus is the boss, I am not. I turn from my sin and I turn to Christ and make him Lord. That's what it means. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, repentance of sin. This guy had all the right answers except for the fact that he realized he was not yet ready to give up on his sin. And so gave him a book to read, prayed for him, asked him to come back to church, continue to grow, told him to get plugged into a small group or a Bible study, uh, told him to, man, listen to messages that he's missed in the past. Hey, let's meet back up in a couple of weeks. We'll talk about this and find out where we're at. Dude left. I wish I could tell you that he got saved, but he hasn't gotten saved yet. Pray that he will. But again, it comes down to the only thing that could save you from your sin is the gospel. Are you willing to receive it? Are you willing to believe it? If not, there's no other salvation given to you. There's no other path to heaven. There's no other name given among men, given under heaven, whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. That's it. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so the gospel shows us that Jesus is the way of salvation. The power of God is manifested. We're particularly that. Uh, the power of God is manifested by delivering man from eternal death to eternal life. So here we see that the day that you got saved, there's a, a dozen things that happened in that moment that you confessed your sin to God. But one of those things is you pass from death to life. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that you and I were dead in our trespasses and sin, but we were made alive together with Jesus Christ by His Spirit. That you were dead spiritually when you were born, and the only way that you were made alive was the day that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Psalm 106, verse number 8 says this, Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. The only person who could save you was Jesus. The power is found in the gospel. God's provision of salvation shows that we need to be saved, and we need a Savior. The greatest need of this hour in our country, in our world today, is not somebody to fix our economic crisis. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Our greatest need that we have is not paying extra at the pump. It would be nice, but that's not the greatest need that we have. Greatest need is not world peace, unity, the end of racism in America, the end of gender confusion and all the other nonsense that goes along with that. Not, the greatest need that we have is not a return to biblical sexuality or anything along those lines. The greatest need that we have in this day is someone to fix our sin. Because every problem that flows from our heart is a sin problem. Why do we have racism? Sin. You fix sin, you fix racism. Jesus fixes that. We, we have uh, people in our nation today that are mourning the possibility, theoretical, hypothetical loss of the ability to kill their own children, mourning it. What's the root of that? Sin? I heard something that was posted this past week that stuck with me. So if we champion women who have an abortion because it was the right thing for them, we should also champion men who leave their children because it was the best thing for them. I thought to myself, you can't have it both ways, can you? But we, we live in a nation now where people are mourning the ability to take a human life and not think twice about it. 
What fixes that? Should we march? Should we put together a parade? Should we order megaphones off of Amazon and pass them out for everybody to go out in their community this week? No, no, that doesn't fix the problem. Only the gospel solves these heart problems. Why does one country rise up against another country for a need to be great? It's a sin problem. And we have to have something that fixes that. So God sent us a Savior to save us from our sin. And, and so I believe every problem in the world will be fixed when we fix our heart problem with sin. There won't be a need for human trafficking and human slavery if the demand goes to zero. There won't be a demand for pornography. There'll be no market for pornography if the demand goes to zero. But again, we try to fix all these different problems. And let me just tell you this, again, not a political statement, this is a biblical statement. You cannot legislate morality. You can can make all the rules in the world that you want to, but you can't change someone's heart. You can make it increasingly difficult to get firearms. Hey, look, you're going to get a knife or a rock or something, you know? We're going to figure out a way to do what our sinful, wicked hearts want to do. And we can't set up enough rules and regulations to force people to live right. We have to fix the heart. And that's why the gospel is the power of God, because it fixes the heart. But the gospel requires faith. You can turn back to Romans chapter 1, if you would. Romans chapter 1, verse number 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. You see, you can't be saved without faith. Sometimes people say this, well, if I could see it, then I would believe it. So if if God came down from heaven and had a conversation with you, you'd believe it then. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, it doesn't work that way because you don't come to God by what you can see with your own two eyeballs. You come to God by faith. And if you see it, it's no longer faith. But it's interesting, if you let that play out, like, oh, if God came down, and like, if God came down just like, say, for an afternoon, and he walked around and sat with us and answered all the questions that we had and maybe helped out people who needed help or people that were sick and made them get to feeling better like right away. We all saw that. Man, what would we do? Would that turn everybody in America over to Christ? Would that cause everybody to say, whoa, we were totally wrong about this. Here is God in the flesh. We can't deny it any longer. No, you know what would happen? We'd crucify him. That's precisely what happened. God already came down to earth and lived for 33 and a half years and walked around, helped anybody who asked, healed anybody who came to him, sat down, ate lunch with people, answered questions, explained the scriptures to them, explained the kingdom of God to them in terms that they could understand. Like he didn't use big, huge, lofty theological terms. He says, hey, this guy's having a wedding and he invites people to the wedding, but nobody shows up to the wedding. He talked to them in terms that they could understand. And did it cause mass revival where everyone turned to put their faith in Christ? No, they crucified him. So again, the idea that you and I would just be won over by God coming to us in the flesh, we're overestimating our ability to truly believe what we see. But that wouldn't really matter a whole lot because God expects faith from us. Christianity is about faith. If I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth, that's showing faith. And the power of God that's provided 
in the gospel is extended to everyone who comes to God in faith. Everybody. There's no one that cannot be saved. Jesus Christ originally had come to the Jews as their Messiah. Uh, the one who had been prophesied for thousands of years. He fulfilled all those prophecies. And the Jews rejected him. So he says, okay, fine. You don't want me. I'll go to anybody that will follow me. Now, it's important to understand that this wasn't God's plan B to save the rest of us. God already had a plan in place to do that. And that's the way that he did it. He came to the Jews, first of all, to show them the hardness of their hearts. That they truly didn't believe the scriptures the way that they said that they did. When they rejected Christ, Christ's salvation then became available to all. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse number 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God and the salvation to the Jew first, and then also to the rest of us, to the Greeks. But it requires faith, because the just shall live by faith. And anyone that comes to God in repentance can be saved One author put it this way, he said, salvation is not merely professing to be a Christian, nor is it baptism, moral reform, going to church, receiving sacraments, or living a life of self-discipline and sacrifice. Salvation is believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Salvation comes through giving up one's own goodness, works, and knowledge, and wisdom, and trusting in the finished, perfect work of Christ. That's it. I believe with every fiber of my being that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died for my sins. He's the only way to heaven. And when I die, my faith is fully in Jesus, not in anything that I've done or how good I've been or when I got baptized or what church I attended. My faith is in Jesus and Jesus alone to take me to heaven. That's it. And friend, let me just tell you this today. If you're trusting in your baptism or the church that you attend or your pastor or what your mama told you one time, your faith is in the wrong place and you need to put it in Jesus alone. So many times I've heard people say like, well, I think that I'm saved because my mom told me that when I was four, I prayed some prayer. I don't remember anything about it, but my mom told me so. Son, when you stand before God one day, you better have a better answer than my mama told me so. Because your mom ain't going to be there on that day. You need to know for sure that your sins are forgiven for yourself. But again, that's where faith comes in. I believe that Jesus Christ is the only one that can save me and I've repented of my sins and have been made whole. When we do that, God imputes his righteousness to us. The gospel gives us God's righteousness. Again, verse number 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. We're gonna get to this when we get to Romans chapter five. But faith brings salvation which imparts the righteousness of God to the recipient. When you were saved, when I was saved, basically it worked like this. God took our sin and he placed it upon Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ became sin for us, he had to be punished because sin always has to be punished. So my sin, your sin, placed upon Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus became sin, and when he did, he had to be punished. And so he's put up on the cross to suffer, to bleed, to die, to endure the wrath of God because of my sin and yours, because Jesus was sin. 
The day that you and I put our faith in Jesus and his work upon the cross and the fact that he has paid my sin debt in full, and I believe that to be so, Jesus' righteousness is now placed upon me. So that when God sees me, he doesn't see my sin because it's been placed on Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Jesus on me. So I'm no longer in danger of wrath or punishment or judgment because I am clean as a whistle because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. It's sometimes described to, I love this description, the beautiful exchange. My sin upon Jesus Christ, his righteousness upon me. God sees my sin, Jesus is punished. God sees Jesus' righteousness, I am blessed. It doesn't get any better than that. We call that justification. Some, some pastors sometimes say, well, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's a cute way to remember it, but that's not the fullness of it. The fullness is that Jesus suffered and bled and died because of my sin, and I stand legally guiltless before God because I stand in the righteousness of Jesus. So when I get to heaven one day, there's not this scale of, of my good and my bad and which one outweighs the other. I, I show up to heaven completely clean of any wrongdoing because I'm washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's like as good as it gets. So when verse number 17 says that the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, is the righteousness of God revealed by faith. That's what it means that you and I can be declared righteous because of what Jesus has done. And so justification is the act of God imputing his righteousness to his born-again children. And so if you have been saved, if you have been born again, you have been declared by God legally righteous before God. Not because you're good, but because God is gracious. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. You can be declared righteous because of your faith in the gospel. But the gospel requires continual day-by-day faith. I, just, I didn't need the gospel as a nine-year-old boy when I got saved. I needed the gospel as a 45-year-old grown man this morning when I woke up to put my shoes on. I need the gospel to carry me out through the rest of this day. If I'm going to be the father that God has called me to be for my family, I'm going to have to live in the power of the gospel today and tomorrow, and the day after that. If I want a marriage that's going to go the distance and honor God, I'm going to have to live the gospel in my marriage every day. What does that even mean? That means when you're wrong and you've sinned, you repent of your sin, and you fall on the grace of God to carry you through. That's what it means to live out the gospel in every relationship. You've got a difficult working environment, the power of the gospel is enough to pull you through. It's just a faith by faith day-by-day journey that we're on. After one is saved, faith now has to become a daily way of life. You didn't just live by faith the day you got saved. You need to live by faith every single day. Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. So faith is just a natural outgrowth of a decision that you've already made. So, friend, if you've been saved or born again, that day you put your faith in Jesus, that was just the first step of 10,000 steps of faith that you'll live out over the rest of your life. Hundreds of thousands of acts of faith. Friend, when you got up and got dressed and showed up to church service this morning, that was an act of faith on your part. I believe that Jesus Christ is worthy of a couple hours of my time and I want to hear from him. 
Maybe you came this morning because you want to be with God's people and worship God because he's worthy. Maybe you came like me because you know that you are not enough and you need wisdom and power from the one who is enough and his name is Jesus. I don't know why you're here, but being here is an act of faith on your part. But that's just, just going to continue day by day. That's how Christians live. I got three introspective questions for you, first of all, before we're dismissed. First of all, are you ashamed of Jesus? I'm not talking about are you willing to put a, a fish bumper sticker on your back of your car. I'm not talking about you're like next level and you get the fish that's eating the Darwin with the fish with the... I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like, well, I'm a Christian, but like I'm not like that kind of Christian. I'm not like out there, you know. Are you ashamed of Jesus? It's interesting because... It's quite the paradox in our society that we live in today. Because you're challenged to live your authentic self. Be who you are. Don't be ashamed of that. Be proud of who you are. Wear a label. If you don't have a label, make up a label for who you are. Celebrate the authentic you. Let other people see your true colors and let them shine. Be bold. Be brave. Be out there. Unless you're a Christian and then you need to keep your mouth shut Keep your political views to yourself. Keep your hands off my body. Keep your laws off my body. Keep your bigoted hate speech to yourself. And you need to go like find a closet with all the other people that are like you. While the rest of us can live our authentic self. It's quite the disconnect, isn't it? That like we as Christians, I mean, we can't really have Christian pride shirts because pride is a sin. And then if we have Christian humility shirts, we're not really humble because we're expressing our humility, how humble we are. Like, I don't know how that, how that works, but it's, it's interesting, though, that, that, that many Christians today are ashamed of being a Christian, and I don't want people to find out. I've had people before tell me, uh, hey, I accepted Christ as Savior, but don't tell anybody. What? That, that's, that's the opposite of being saved. That's the opposite of Christianity. Today, we'll have the opportunity to baptize seven people publicly at Alamona Beach Park. Love it. I've had people ask me before, hey, can we have a private baptism so like nobody watches and nobody knows? Absolutely not under no circumstances whatsoever. No, that's the opposite of Christianity. And if that's your thought, like I want to be a Christian, but I don't want people to know. I'm not going to make any commentary on this verse. I'm just going to say what Jesus said, okay? And if you want to do your own research, do your own research. But I'm not making any commentary. I'm not making any judgment. I'm just going to say what Jesus said. If any man will deny me, I'll deny him before my father. So are you ashamed of Jesus? Are you willing to boldly stand for Jesus? I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know, one of the men in our church, you know, he doesn't have a lot of uh, guys that are working under him, a lot of people that report to him or anything like that. Doesn't really have an office that people come and sit in or anything like that. And so he just has a, uh, in his office, he took a Bible to work, he sits it on his desk at work. That's his way of letting his faith be shown. Now, he's been in other jobs before where he tells people, hey, I'm a Christian, that kind of identifies how I live my life and the decisions that I make. 
had the opportunity for many of the men in our church to go to advancement ceremonies or change of command ceremonies or award ceremonies where they have the opportunity to speak and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower. I think God is pleased and honored by that. But I'm talking about more than just like, oh, oh well, I never got an award to, to make a speech. <laughs> I'm not talking about being bold by making a speech. I'm talking about be- being bold by living your life. So like your, your neighbors know that you're a Christian. Your coworkers know you're a Christian. You have the opportunity to share your faith with other people. Talk about being bold in your stand for Christ. Look, the last thing that America needs is closeted Christians. This is our opportunity to actually live legitimate, faith-filled Christian lives. And look, if things are getting darker in America, what a greater opportunity to shine light. But are you willing also to be unashamed of the gospel well it's a hard message i got it i'm with you it's hard i'll give you that but it's also powerful it's also full of a lot of hope it's also the most encouraging message anyone could ever possibly hear regardless of how bad you are god still loves you regardless of how bad things get god's still in charge it's a message of bring hope would you be willing to be unashamed do you know your faith well enough to share it with somebody? If somebody asks you, hey, how do I get to heaven when I die? Would you know what to say? If not, I want to help you. I'll give you the tools that you need. I'm not, I'm not down on anybody that I'm, this morning. I'm trying to lift you up. If you don't have the tools, I want to put tools in your hands so that you know how to use them. So many times I talk with Christians. We say, oh, I'll go to XYZ Church. I say, hey, how do I, how do I get to heaven? Again, any opportunity I've had to talk with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or uh, anybody, hey, how do I get to heaven? Tell me that. And most of them can't even articulate that. That's kind of like the most important thing, Christian. You know, you don't need bagging on people for their life choices if you can't tell people how to change. You can't be downing people for living in sin when you don't have the way to help them get out of sin. The gospel is the power for all of that. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, today is your opportunity to believe and receive. If you'd be willing today to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe he's the only way to heaven. I'm asking him to save me and forgive me of my sins today. You could be saved as well. But the only way that you can do that is by believing the gospel. I love the story of one of the folks we'll hear on the baptism video. I believed in God. I believed in Jesus, but I didn't realize that I was a sinner until I heard the gospel. There's so many stories like that out there, people who think they're good people, who self-identify as Christians, they just don't know. Let's have the opportunity to tell them this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.